Hello, my friend. Welcome to the Business Leadership Today podcast. I'm your host, Matt Tenney. As an active CEO, my goal is to build and sustain world-class organizations that make a positive impact on the lives of employees and on the global community. Although I've spent nearly a decade doing leadership consulting, I know I still have a lot to learn. And I have a lot of questions regarding how we can continuously get better and achieve our goals. Through this podcast, we reach out to top thought leaders and business leaders to get answers to those questions. And we give you the opportunity to listen to their answers too. This episode is on how to be agile and innovative without burning people out. My guest today is Dr. Ciela Hartanoff, who is the founder and managing director of Hum Collective, a boutique strategy and innovation firm that helps companies, executives, and teams make sense of the forces that are shaping the future and prepare for those strategically. Ciela was part of the founding team of the Google School for Leaders and head of next practice innovation and strategy at Google, where she developed projects designed to shape the future of leadership and work. Ciela has been a featured speaker at a wide range of conferences from the House of Beautiful Business to the HR Leaders Forum in Australia. And she's been quoted in Psychology Today and Forbes and is sought after for her thought leadership on the future of leadership and adaptable organizations. Her book, Reclaiming Sensitivity, is scheduled for release in early 2023. Ciela brings a multidisciplinary view that leverages business foresight and organizational development to break barriers and invent the next practices for humane, kind, and responsive workplaces. So I am very excited to hear her insights today. Ciela, thank you so much for taking the time to join me here on Business Leadership Today. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's a real pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, you know, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to share what you believe are the five most important things that a leadership needs to be, a leadership team needs to be doing so that we can be agile and innovative, but not at the expense of human well-being. Before we get into that, I know that you, ha- you have kind of an interesting story about how you got into this space um, and how it was, it was uh, facilitated through some insights around awe and wonder. Could you start our conversation by by sharing that story? Sure, Matt. I'd be happy to. So as you can tell from my background, um, I'm an organization development professional by training. And so I'd like to share with you how I got into the innovation space and how I followed my wonder into this new way of thinking and really what charted a new career territory for myself. So early in, I think it was 2016, I was facilitating a group of leaders where I was working at the time. And what I started realizing is that what I was doing wasn't working. And you know, sometimes you have that niggling feeling where you're thinking, gosh, I'm an expert here, but all these (laughs) tools are not working. And I, I couldn't seem to get this leadership team to move, to be effective, And I started feeling a little bit downtrodden. And I thought, Mm. huh, what's going on here? All the tools at my disposal are not not working. So I started thinking about what is is happening here? And I just started getting curious um, around, hmm, there must be something more. So I took the bold step uh, after you know, a lot of talking to myself and my confidants around, okay, can I take this bold step? And I took the bold step and I went to my boss at the time and I said, you know what? I don't think what I'm doing is working. And I'd like to embark on 
a different sort of six month assignment. I want to propose something to you. Hmm. And I said to her, so I want you to take me out of my day job of leadership and organization development. And I want you to just to give me a runway of about six months to study the future of leadership, because I think there's something else here that might be useful for us as an organization. And thankfully, hmm. this boss, my boss at the time said, okay, great. Give me a proposal and I'll, I'll shoot it up the chain. Wow. And she did on my behalf. And what happened out of that is I got a six month sort of grace period off of my, my regular day job. And that actually turned into my new day job. And I ended up building a whole innovation practice inside this company. But it took this moment for me of curiosity and wonder to say, what else might be possible here? And putting myself a little bit on the line hmm. to say, you know, Maybe this expertise that I've gained over time is not it. It's not, it's not completely useful, perhaps, in this moment of change. And so what else might be possible here? And inside that six months, I really went wide and I thought, I want to approach this, I, this project from a very different point of view. I have an academic background, so I could have gone very traditional. I could have said, okay, I'm going to read all the literature and I'm going to run a an end-to-end -end scientific study. And instead, what I said is, hmm, I actually want to talk to a futurist. I want to talk to people who are studying trends, who are coming at this from a different point of view. And I want to learn how to think wider. And through that process, I learned more and more about foresight and the using business trends against the context of organizations and leadership development. And I'll never forget, I was so out of my depth. I, have, I had no idea this type of work, but I found a partner who was willing to help me. And I just kept going back to this place of, can I just live in curiosity hmm. over rightness? Because I could definitely go into rightness. I had all the credentials to do that. But I just came coming back to curiosity, curiosity. And we ran all sorts of conversations and foresight work. And all of this culminated on, on this walk I took after work. I was grappling with all of this information. And I thought, I just need to go for a walk because there was so much bubbling inside of me. Mm -hmm. And I went out on this walk and I was in San Francisco and I was on the Embarcadero and I was walking towards my home, which was on the other side. So I won't ever forget this. I was by the ferry building in San Francisco, if you're familiar. Mm -hmm. I was walking by. And all of a sudden I had these, these just brain flashes where all of the information was coming together and I had all this thinking and I had to stop right. <laughs> and on, on the bench, on the park bench and get out my okay. notebook. And I was writing, writing, writing. And this turned into this sort of amalgamation of the research. And this research turned into a future of leadership report that ended up informing the curriculum uh, for the Google School for Leaders and setting the next practice and the new foundation for how we thought about leadership. But mm. none of that would have been possible had I not taken this moment of courage to say, I think I can give something more, but also giving myself the space to just right. walk away from the office for a day and be outside and let myself wonder and be in awe and, and give myself the grace away from the day-to-day -day productivity meal mill to say what else is next. 
So that's what I want to encourage everyone to do is to get into their place of awe and wonder and, and create space for themselves to do that. And also for leaders and those who are run or running organizations to create an environment where that's allowed. Mm. And, and maybe even encouraged. And encouraged. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd like to get your thoughts on this. This is something that I've been playing around with, and I'd, I'd like to hear your perspective on this. So this is something I've noticed very much so, um, particularly over the last few years, as I have two small children, and I try mm -hmm. to spend as much time with them as I can. So I, I shape my work around when they're at school or, or not at school. And so what, it, what tends to result is early afternoons, I'm playing with kids, right? Yeah. And I've noticed that it's in that white space where it seems like what the, the, the focus is, you know, I've let go of intentionally thinking. I'm not in my head talking to myself. I'm just present with my kids. I'm just playing with them or, or walking outside like you were. And it seems to me that that's where uh, the, the brain or the, the subconscious mind just gets all of a sudden it's doing its work because I'm not interfering mm -hmm. by talking to myself or trying to ingest a bunch of new information you know, my, my conscious mind is kind of just at rest. And that's where a lot of dots get connected is in, is in that, that is. white space. And so I've noticed that it's similarly, you know, every, every hour I try to take 10 minutes to go for a walk away. Well, about five minutes, I take a 10 minute break, five minutes walking. And I notice the same thing that that's where a lot of times something I've been working on, the problem gets solved while I'm on my walk, not while I'm at my desk. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. On that in, intentional white space every day in, you know, various times throughout the day, uh, potentially, not just for leaders, but for employees and the benefits of that. Well, I think that you're speaking to something that's been proven uh, scientifically in that when we give our brain a break space, then it will in our subconscious level from a neuroscience perspective, the dots will, and connections will start being made. Mm. So we know this from brain science. So mm. what you're experiencing, what I experience can be experienced by everyone because this is the way the brain works, but you have to give it the space. So I love what you're describing because what you've started to do is build it as a practice mm. into your everyday experience. And that's what can create this opportunity for this to happen more often versus needing, like I did, to sort of leave my day job and give my brain a, a longer period mm. of space. But if you can build this practice in regularly, then you're more likely to gain insight on a regular basis. And all of us have experienced this, right? Being in the shower. <laughs> right. And then you get that moment of aha or... Mm. Um, or maybe not so wonderfully, um, you're trying to go to sleep at night and then your brain is doing that work when right. you want to be sleeping. And so if you can build that in to your actual day-to-day, -day, it's going to be really valuable. Now, because we live in a, a world obsessed with productivity and um, efficiency, this can feel like a luxury. And I want to encourage us to reframe that this is actually where the creative spark lives. And if you create more space for that, you're going to be solving problems faster over time. Mm. So we need to, to sort of reframe how we're understanding what productivity looks like. The other thing I'll say about play 
is that there's a whole study and um, of of play and how how children play and then learn, mm-hmm. and that doesn't stop because we become adults. What happens is we don't give ourselves <laughs> the chance to play. Right. But if we play as adults, we we can access all that same awe and wonder that we had as children. Mm. And that's a lovely forcing mechanism that you have, Matt, which is your children are there. So you can play with them and get that same sort of boost inside your adult experience. <laughs> oh, awesome. So it's kind of like I, I've just through the through the fortune, the good fortune of having a couple yes. of cute little kids. I'm just kind of forced into some white space infused with awe and wonder, right? Right. (laughs) And I have, I had a a colleague um, when I was still at Google and we were running, we were building this practice around creating new courageous conversations. And what we were trying to do was unlock really hard, challenging conversations for the purpose of innovation. Hmm. So we did a lot of studying around what creates innovative conversations and next dialogue. And one of the foundational things that we found is that play on wonder was a foundation for Mm. being able to have these harder conversations. So one of the things that my colleague did, and I just thought it was a brilliant idea is that when she would, this is when we could still come together in person, when she would have people come to the room that this conversation was going to be had in, she would have people take off their shoes and put on like fun socks with like (laughs) ducks on them and other things. So you were in these fun socks. So you couldn't really take yourself that seriously. And then she curated a play corner where she curated all of these different types of games from our childhood, like, um, Mm. I shouldn't say what they were because it'll probably age me, but like Lincoln logs and all sorts of different (laughs) fun things that we would know from our childhood. And people loved this. They gravitated towards it as a way, as an entry point into, we don't have to be so serious about this, Mm. even if we're executives. I love it. So, so what I'm getting out of this is that when my kids get to be teenagers and they don't want to play with me anymore. I'm going to have to adopt some young kids to make sure I have well, that You're going to have to find other play <laughs> friends. Yes. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. That, that's, a, the, that's a wonderful in, um, introduction to what we're going to dive deeper into today. And so if you don't mind, um, I know that I, ahead of time, we've asked you to, to put some mm. thought into what you think are the five most important things that we as leaders need to be doing to create a culture where agility and innovation are happening and that it's sustainable because we're not burning people out. So what I'd like you to do, if, if you don't mind, Sale, is if you could share those five things just kind of briefly in a, in a couple sentences. Yes. And then to give um, listeners just some things to think about, you know, they have five different things to think about, and then we'll go deep on at least uh, two or three of those and uh, really explore how to, how to put those into action. Great. So the first one we've already spoken about, which is creating a culture of, of awe and wonder. The second one is charting the direction, not focusing so much on the destination. Mm. The third one is recognizing and reinforcing the need for stability. The next one is focusing not on scale, but on the network effect. And then finally, focus more on experiments, less on metrics. Mm. Well, I want to talk about all these. Um, maybe we can. We'll, we'll shoot for that. We'll shoot okay. for talking about all four in addition to the awe and wonder, since we, we, I think we've got a good introduction to that just uh, in the story that you shared and 
the follow-up question that I had. So let's see how it goes. Um, okay. But let's start with the, the three for sure. And let's start with the first one, if you don't mind. If So when you say um, chart the direction, not the destination, can you first just kind of define the terms here? So yeah. what do you what do you mean by this? And why is it important? And then and then we'll maybe go into some of the execution. Here. Yeah, absolutely. So when we are in situations that are more emergent as innovation is. So when we're thinking about building innovation practices, it's an emergent process. So by so when I say chart the direction, know directionally where you're trying to get. So to use my example, I knew that I directionally was trying to get to what is the future of leadership, which is a really big question, but directionally I knew that that is that was where my sort of focus was. But I was not focused on a destination, meaning I didn't know if I was going to get a list of leadership competencies out of this Mm. or if I was going to um, completely reinvent an idea that had been known for a very long time. I, I didn't know like the destination. So when we're talking about innovation, especially in complex environments, as most of organizations are nowadays, we need to be, we need to have directionally where we're going, but hold very loose to the outcome and the destination that we're seeking. Because if you are looking specifically for a destination, all you're going to do is be on repeat about best practices you've already mm, heard. Right. And that's not, that's by definition, not innovation. That's benchmarking. <laughs> right. So, so just to clarify here, because I think this is probably where most people's minds would go. At least this is where, where my mind went. Um, you know, is this is very different from thinking about coming up with a strategy and, yeah. and how you're, what are the, the, the benchmarks for demonstrating whether or not we're effectively executing on that strategic plan this is kind of separate. This is more about, okay, yes, we, we, we know what our strategy is right now, but we also know that that strategy may very well be worthless two years from now if we can't continuously innovate and adapt to the changing environment that we're in. So we also have, also have to have this approach to how, how are we going to adapt? How are we going to innovate? Is that, is that That's true? Right. Is that kind of what you're talking about here? Yes, so and, we're and separating strategic execution mm-hmm. from the process of innovation. And in the process of innovation, it's much less about having this very clear destination, which can actually keep you from innovating, right? And it's much more about having a general direction and then being open to a lot of different possibilities. Is that, is that what you're that saying? That is exactly what it is. And this okay. is what I call emergent strategy. So there's two different mm. types of strategy, plan strategy, which we are all very familiar with. It comes out of Porter. Uh, It's reinforced through all the big uh, consulting firms. So we're very familiar with plan strategy. And that has a place. So I'm very much a yes and when I think about organizations because we have to be. They're too complex not to be. But the and I'm asking for here is to say, how do we also build and allow for emergence inside our strategy so that we can have more of a loosely held destination and directionally we can make some pivots and moves so that we can really leapfrog because that's where it comes from Mm. is, is allowing a bit more openness and emergence to live inside the system. And I think we see that um, from some of the very classic examples, for instance, like 
um, Steve Jobs when directionally he sort of knew that he wanted to um, think about fonts in very different ways. And the way he he sort of allowed himself to do that, it also attaches to awe and wonder. And you may already know this story, but he audited, um, I think it was a typography class at a local college. And with, with just sort of a loosely idea that he was interested in this and sort of just being curious as he was, mm-hmm. that's the on wonder part. And then he ended up bringing this into when he was building, you know, the computer and he got really interested around, okay, how do I use this information, this knowledge to, to create new fonts inside of the computers? The reason why we have all these different font choices is directly because Steve Jobs was interested in this sort of random class and, and then he brought it in and thought, okay, mm. what is possible with this? And that's what I mean by direction. It's like, huh, what is possible with this here? Now, he couldn't have possibly known that the destination was creating new fonts and a, a bunch of font options. He couldn't have planned for that. But he was holding all of these different ideas and then using them directionally to create something completely new. Mm. Something that comes to mind too when you when you first started speaking about this was just how many times a startup launch launches with the idea of solving right. one problem and then they start interacting with customers and find out there's a much more important problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, probably the most obvious example I think is Slack, you know, where they yes. they had they were working on something entirely different, built an internal communication system for themselves, solve their own problem. And then when people saw it, they're like, we want that. <laughs> and, That's right. And I don't even know. I don't even remember what they originally started working on. I think it was on. a gaming company. Oh, is I that think what it was? It was some sort of gaming. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I Well, if I recall correctly. And I think what you're alluding to is really helpful because when you're in a big corporation, this can feel really novel and perhaps scary. Like mm. what? Don't set the strategic direction. And, and it just means be agile inside of that. And startups do it all the time. So mm-hmm. I think there is something to say, okay, let's look. What can we learn from how startups think about it? And to your point, there's there's always an interest in how, how is the customer receiving this? If we look, if we turn that inside, we could also say, you know, when we want to build a new workplace, how are employees receiving this? Mm-hmm. We are smack dab in the middle of a workplace revolution where we don't know the destination. We couldn't possibly know what hybrid's going to look like in five years. We'll probably look back and laugh at what we thought it was going to be. Mm. But we're taking directional steps. Right. Because there's no um, other choice inside of it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, we kind of have to right now. Unless we have you just to. Uh, don't want to have any employees that stick around for more than six months. That's you, you, right. We need to be pretty flexible right now. That's right. And, um, well, this is fantastic. All right, so let's let's um, touch on this second point here that you brought up, which is the the importance of recognizing and reinforcing stability. So, can yeah. you tell me what you mean by this and and why you think it's so important? Yes. So, I did a big research project while I was still at Google about transformation. Um, you know, the big T word, and what I was looking for actually was leaders and employees who are able to transform themselves and transform their mindset really effectively and what Mm. they did. 
And surprisingly to me, when I interviewed, I did a qualitative study, when I interviewed a lot of people who were great at being agile and innovative, what I found was the corollary for them to not get burnt out was that they had a lot of stability practices and mm. they, would, they would not sacrifice their stability practices. So I had one leader say to me, I always have dinner with my family at 6 p.m. and that's a non-negotiable. Because what that does is that resets myself. And that to me creates stability in my life, something that I know will always be there inside of the context of all of this change, whether this change is self-imposed or organizationally imposed. And that was really eye-opening to me because from a psychological standpoint, human beings can only handle so, so much uncertainty or other, otherwise we're pushed into fight or flight. That's a mm. biological response. So it, it now, in retrospect, I think it makes good sense that you continuously have to build in stability practices if you're asking people to be innovative. So you can't just, you can't just be full on all the time inside uncertainty and novelty. It can be really fun, but it's only fun if you also have some stable ground to go back to. Mm. So organizations can do this, but individuals also can do this for themselves. So I encourage it at both levels. And so what, how, how would this look like practically at, at the organizational level? I think you gave a great yeah. example personally, you know, mm -hmm. say, okay, I'm not going to miss my morning workout and I'm not going to miss dinner with my family. Everything else, I'm pretty flexible, but those two things have to stay. That's right. So what about how can, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a leader of a team, how can I try to help team members have that same type of stability, yes. whether it be at work or away from work? So I think my manager did a great job when I asked to take a big innovative risk and mm. leave my day job. And I said, I need six months. And she said, okay, six months. So for me, that was stable ground because mm. I knew within that six months, I had the room and she was going to have my back for six months. It wasn't like she was going to be coming one month in and saying, what are you doing? Have you made an innovative breakthrough? Right. I knew the time span that I had. And I also knew in that context, what accountability was going to look like. And also practically how this was going to impact my performance review. We had all those conversations ahead of time. Mm so that I could create the conditions to just only be concerned about the innovation. And that, that stable ground for me was knowing that she was going to, going to hold that steady for me and go. And if anyone else was knocking on the door and saying, why isn't CL in her day job? She was going to say, because it's six months. Mm. And so maybe uh, if we have a team where we, we're not able to give somebody six months to work on a project, we might be able to build something in where, like three days a week, we say, look, That's right. I would like you to put time on your calendar where you're not, you're not executing on any tasks. I would just like you to go for a walk and, and just think about what you're interested mm -hmm. in as it relates to things we're working on. Um, you know, and just, and then letting people know like, Hey, that space, like you, you can feel free to turn down meetings if they're in that time, mm -hmm. you know, that's your time. Is that that's right. what you're pointing so to? So that's, that's sort of at the individual manager level. And every manager is responsible for creating the conditions inside their organization. And so that's a great example of how an individual manager can do that. At the organizational level, 
the best mechanisms are, are the same mechanisms we use to reinforce other things like high productivity. We use accountability measures. So how are you giving grace inside of, of the standard processes that every organization tends to run, which is things like performance reviews. And so some organizations that are quite innovative, they're really interested in how much innovation you're bringing to the table, and then you get held accountable to that. So a, mm. a great example of this is X, the Moonshot Factory. They measure you on how many failed ideas you have mm. and the more the better right because so what they're trying to get is innovation failure. right they're trying to get ideas into the system and and so there's no perfect idea so as long as you're generating ideas then you're going to meet the metric for what success looks like and i'm sure they have some standards about like look at a certain number of failed experiments given that it's a well-run experiment, right? Like you have to have these factors built into the experiment. So it's not just like, oh, I had a hundred failed experiments, but they were all junk. They have to be well set up, right? But yeah. the more that well-run experiments that you can fail at, the better. Right? The better, absolutely. Fantastic. And failure is like celebrated. And I know we talk about that all the time about failure being celebrated. And very rarely do I see an organization that does that well. <laughs> But I think it's worth us considering, like, what do we, when, when it comes down to it, how is our organization really accepting or not accepting failure? Mm. I love it. All right. So the, the next big idea here is to focus not on scale, but network effect. Yeah. So again, with this one, can you tell me what you mean by this and then why, yes. why it's so important? So I think the scale is the enemy of innovation at, in the beginning. Mm. So if you're coming in and you're thinking, we're going to create an innovation idea. And then the next question is, how is it going to scale? You've lost the plot. Mm. So <laughs> when we are talking about innovation, I encourage every organization not to think about scale, just to think about network effect. And the reason why I say that is because good ideas will go viral. We know that from, um, <laughs> from our day-to-day -day lives inside social media. Right. No one is master planning a scaling effort inside of a viral video, but someone comes up with something innovative and cool. And then the network effect is what will, will make it its scale and make it go. So a great example of this is this organization. And I don't know if you know about it. It's quite interesting. It's called Birdsog or Birdsorg. It's in the Netherlands mm -hmm. and they're a neighborhood nursing organization. And they've really changed a lot of their practices. And I, I think they're worth um, your listeners looking into as a case study, but they've given a lot of autonomy to these sort of traveling neighborhood nurses who go and they service inside the community, those people who need nursing support. So they learn the community, they learn their clients inside the nursing community. And the way they approach innovation is that it's on the ground. And so the nurses will, in these different communities will go around. And if one of these nursing communities has a really interesting idea or solve for a problem that they're experiencing, what they will do is they will write up all of the protocol, the way it worked, everything, and they'll give it away to all the other nurses in all the other different neighborhoods. Mm. And there's no top-down expectation that this, this um, method will be scaled or pushed out or anything. It's just 
it's given away as like, we learned this, we came, we came up with this innovative idea. If you want to use it and it's valuable to you, you use it too. Here's all the tools. And so what they're using is a network effect to say, Mm -hmm. you know, your clients best. This is what we know. If this is useful to you, we will give you the tools and everything to pick it up. And what has happened is that those things that are truly innovative and truly valuable at scale end up scaling because right. all of the in, in neighborhoods pick it up. Yeah. So that's the network effect. So I think we've, we over-index on scale, but what scale gets us is efficiency, but it doesn't always give us effectiveness. Mm. So it, what, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, instead of focusing on, I think of, many founders, myself included, you know, we tend to think of is like, all right, how I, I like this idea, how I'm going to market this, how, how am I going to, how am I going to 10 X my sales every year? Whereas what we should be thinking early on is how can we really make sure that we're just adding unbelievable value to the person whose problem we're solving for them? You know, if we can solve a problem, that's really painful. People are going to talk about that, right? You're gonna, right. They're going to share it, right? Is that, is that kind of what you're pointing Absolutely. to here? And in, and in business, this is the classic thing about the referral. I mean, there's all sorts of studies, right? That a lot of marketing that's at scale doesn't work because it's too mm, bland. The, the customer mm. doesn't even know what you're really giving them. Mm. And so referral is the network effect at play inside of, of you know, creating more customers. Hmm. Fantastic. Thank you, Ciela. You're welcome. Okay. So one more idea that I'm really excited to hear about it. Um, this is one that I've actually put quite a bit of thought into. So I, I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. And it's the idea that we should be doing more experiments. And when I, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying more experiments, less metrics. And I almost hear that as more experiments and less judgment. Right? <laughs> I like that reframe. Um, <laughs> that's great. I guess metrics can sit with judge with alongside judgment. Um, <laughs> not necessarily metrics used well yeah. could be not necessarily judgment, but so can you tell me more what you mean by this yeah. when you're saying more experiments, less metrics, what do you mean here? And, and why is this so important? Yes, I'm happy to. And this one links up a lot to chart the um, direction. So the way we make progress directionally is by running something in complexity theory that they call safe to fail experiments, Mm. where you run things that are safe, micro experiments to see if you're getting closer to unlocking the problem. Mm. And when we think about complex environments, this is really the only way forward because you don't know ultimately the destination. You really don't. So the way you make progress is by running experiments and then seeing, huh, did this experiment, what parts of this experiment worked? Did it not work? Okay. Now that I know that, what new experiment do I want to run here? And so you just start making some like experimental moves and to, to be geeky for just one moment. Um, this is important because this is how systems actually work. So if you look at <laughs> systems theory, mm. um, like out of the, the Santa Fe Institute, who study a lot about complex systems, there's no such thing as a huge overhaul of a complex system. All there is is nudging and experimentation. Mm. So that's the background and sort of scientifically why this works is because 
if you want to make innovation and you want to get a, a system to change, the best thing you can do is experiment and nudge against it versus try to do a, a large scale transformation, if you will. And that's, of course, the opposite of being uh, metric driven, which is a, a set of KPIs that you're targeting. Mm. That is very much about the direction. And did we meet those KPIs? An illusion that if we may meet these KPIs, then we're going to be successful and the transformation is going to be successful. Mm. And because I work inside organization change and culture a lot, we see this happen a lot inside of like culture change efforts. We ask the question, well, what are the metrics that people are changing, for example? Or what are we trying to get people to do um, in the long run, for example? Versus instead saying, you know, directionally, what kind of culture are we trying to build? And then what experiments could we run? And then what are the small signals that it's actually working? So for example, if you're dealing with the collaboration issue, you could start nudging against the system and experiment by you know, offering people some money to go out to coffee together if they happen to be in the same city and they haven't seen each other in ages, right? Mm. There's no real KPI around that except for seeing you know, if people are starting to, to act differently together and you learn that by seeing how people behave. Mm. And then if that, that little experiment didn't work, then you need to try something else to see what else, how else you can get people to sort of collaborate and be together differently. And um, so it's just, it's a slight distinction between having a master plan and then sort of nudging instead of trying to set down clear metrics against something that you don't know exactly how it's going to change. Mm. It's, it sounds to me, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the order is really important here, right? Mm. Where I think a lot of times we, we set out, we say, okay, I want to improve these metrics and then I'm going to run experiments <sighs> to see if the metrics improve. And what I hear you saying is, okay, let, let's throw away the traditional metrics for a moment. And let's design an experiment that's in the direction of what we're trying to improve. And then as we begin the experiment and we kind of define what it is that we're trying to tease out, now we can have a, a shorter term metric that that's is right. it's still a metric, but it's going to be different because we're much more open to measuring something that we didn't even think we would initially want to measure, right? We're, Thanks, it's a much, much smaller step. Is that? That's exactly that it. Thank you. Um, that is a wonderful summary. Exactly. And I think when we think about burnout, the reason why innovation um, can often lead to burnout in my estimation is that you're saying be innovative, run experiments, but then you're holding this metric over someone hmm. that's a big metric that has organizational implications. That is very stressful. Hmm. And it's the opposite of creating space for the innovation and the learning. I mean, another way to say it is what you're doing is you're learning as you go versus setting up metrics as you go. Metrics inside an organization has a very specific feel and tone that makes people stressed. Mm. It's kind of, this kind of reminds me of um, Daniel Pink's work from his book Drive, where he was talking mm. about how, you know, if you, if you give somebody any type of problem that requires com complex thinking, as soon as there's an incentive, i.e. a metric is what you're pointing out to, yes. then performance goes down. 
That's right. right. If, it's a, if it's a rudimentary task, incentives work great. But as soon as complex thinking is involved, you're actually inhibiting performance by having these incentives or these metrics that you're trying to hit. And my guess is from what you're saying, that's because we probably don't think as creatively or as out of the box if we're under stress, right? And if we feel that pressure of trying to hit a, a metric or KPI. Absolutely. And that's where the play also comes in. Mm. So these sort of five components, they work together. Mm. And I'm glad you brought up Daniel Pink's book because that book is really exceptional in terms of thinking about motivation inside an organization, but it's also useful when we think about sort of unlocking people's innovative and creative spirit. We have that inside of us, but it's not from the industrial era way of managing people is not going to get us there. And I think that's a lot of what Daniel Pink is sort of unlocking is motivation lives inside of us. And a lot of these architectures that we put inside organizations, what they do is they is they dampen that versus mm. illuminate it. Mm. And so these five steps that you're talking about work in synergy to instead of dampening that creative spirit and the ability yes. to innovate, it's actually creating more space for it and making it more likely to happen. Yeah. So these would be the organizational conditions where innovation agility can thrive. And then you not at the cost of burnout. That was the big question, right? So right. I encourage every organization to think about these as levers, sort of, these are the innovative levers. So if I take these five, do a little sort of assessment on where, where are you in terms mm. of embodying these, what's getting in the way. And then in the experiment, in the, um, interest of experimentation, then the question is, where can we experiment with something else versus sort of how do we overhaul, which I think is the wrong question. It's more, where might we be able to make some micro changes inside our culture to see if we can lessen the burnout and get more innovation and creativity. Mm, fantastic. Well, Ciela, thank you so much. This has been this has been great. Um, I'm so glad that I recorded it and I didn't have to take notes. Otherwise, I would have just been writing notes <laughs> the whole time. So thank you very much for taking the time to be with me today on Business Leadership Today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to be with you. And for you, the listener, my friend, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Ciela Hartanoff, um, we'll have links to her website and her LinkedIn profile at businessleadershiptoday.com along with the show notes. And as soon as her book is available, uh, Reclaiming Sensitivity, we'll have a link to that as well. And uh, before we sign off, I always like to say a thank you to Caleb West, who produces the podcast and edits it um, and does a great job at it. So thank you, Caleb. And until the next time, my friend, I wish you um, great success building a world-class organization that's going to make a positive impact on the lives of your team members and in our global community. Bye for now. <laughs>